Now, if Fads was here, she would have already shouted out Matthew 24. But Fads would be wrong. Yeah, we're taking a break from Matthew 24, although Matthew 24 has led us to where we are now. So just a little bit of recap. Do you remember last time that we discussed, ever since Genesis chapter 3 and the enemy tempting Adam and Eve, that actually the world became under the dominion of the enemy? The enemy was called, even by Jesus, the prince of this world or the god of this world. And ever since that time... Creation has been subject to groaning that sounds like a woman in childbirth, that bad. Creation is groaning. But we, we looked at the pack the, yes, the last week, or last time, sorry, <clears throat> we didn't have to join in with the moaning of the world, although it's tempting, isn't it? Because there's so much of it. But we can, gr- we can instead join in with the sighing, the inward sighing of the Holy Spirit, which is hope-filled. Faith-filled. The world moans, but we inwardly sigh, the Bible says, because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I'm guessing that in the last couple of weeks since we studied this, you've probably had the opportunity to sit with people and listen to them moan. And even felt sorry for them, maybe, that they're stuck in that cycle. And you may have even sensed that the Holy Spirit inside you was saying the complete opposite to what you were hearing right now. When I asked people, what did you hear when we had a quiet time during the message last time, when we listened to the sighing of the Holy Spirit? And one person came up to me after and said, I heard the words trust and hope, which was the very things that I said you might hear when I recapped at the end. And someone else said, I heard a, a little giggle of joy inside, even though that person wasn't having the best of days. So the Holy Spirit is sighing within us. And I wonder how we got on with joining with his inward sigh rather than the world's groaning. Um, as believers, the Bible says we've been transferred from the, domain, the dominion of darkness. We're no longer in that kingdom. We've been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son, the kingdom of light. The Bible even goes as far as to say, greater is he, Jesus who is in you, than he, the enemy, who is in the world. Now sadly... Whilst we're still in the world as it is, I mean, amazingly, actually, before I say that, Jesus' prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, don't take them out of the world, leave them in the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of this world. Jesus came and visited, okay, became one of us to die for us, then went back to heaven. And he was so, so looking forward to going back. Father, the time has come, I can go back with you and have the glory I shared with you in the beginning before I came to earth. And we can look forward to that time too. Um, But Jesus said, we're in this world, but we're no longer of this world. Um, And it says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But sadly, whilst we're in this world, we get to see the pain, the frustration, the groaning that is going on. We also get to see wonderful goodness, don't we? God, who is good, made the world, and the world still has good in it. But... Sometimes we can be overwhelmed with the suffering and the pain that we experience ourselves and that we see. But the amazing thing is, even though we witness the dominion of darkness, actually because Jesus is in us, we're actually meant to be a witness to the world of Jesus' dominion in us. Isn't that true? Which we'll read a little bit more about in a minute. But... 
Each moment, perhaps, that, perhaps that's why gathering in church is such a wonderful relief. Because it's so much easier, isn't it, to join in with the Holy Spirit rather than listening to the world. When you're in a congregation, when you're on a Sunday, you can concentrate a bit more. Whereas when you're out in the world, it's, it's a lot harder because there's a lot more going on, a lot more moaning. And it's harder to join in and listen to the Holy Spirit's sighing in us instead. <clears throat> and sadly, when people, including Christians, see and experience the pain and the suffering confusion of the ever-increasing wickedness or influence of Satan in the world, worldly logic, which persuades us quite often, even as Christians, tends to completely ignore the real reason why everything's going wrong and ends up blaming God. It's this way because of God. That's ordinarily the popular decision. It's this way because of God. And if God wants it this way, that's probably what God must really be like. If I see what I see, then God is probably like that. It seems quite easy to fall into the trap of looking at how things are, then allowing that to shape our opinion of God. If God really is all-knowing and all-powerful, and I'm like this, and the world is like this, then that must mean he approves and even wants it this way. Because if he didn't, he'd do something about it. So I'm guessing whatever's going on is his will. That's the decision we come to sometimes. Have you ever found yourself pondering that same situation about God, that same thinking? God's word says this. Being a Christian, I've read the Bible. So God's word says this, but I'm experiencing this. So therefore, in my reality, God's will must be a mixture of this and this. I know what God's word says, but I know what I'm experiencing and seeing. So God's will must be a mixture of the two. Did we ever fall into that trap? (laughs) Pain has a way of distorting the truth. We make an assumption about God, not just based on what he has said, but also on what we experience in this life too. It can be so hard for so many to rely solely on what God has revealed about himself and his will when we are in a groaning world that is full of circumstances and experiences that are the complete opposite to God. So we end up thinking, well, God must be a bit of a mixture of what he said and what this is happening, rather than just solely relying on what he said in his Bible. Now, here's a really interesting but difficult question as an example. Are you ready for this? And this marks our new kind of series, a new subject. How might you respond to someone, a Christian or a non-Christian, who says... I was born gay, so I guess God wants me to be gay. How do we, how do I, how do you respond to a very difficult but very real question like that? I was born gay. That was a rhetorical one. Oh. That was, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, once I've done, hopefully, if it's wrong, you can give me the correct answer because it's a difficult question, isn't it? Yeah. I think as a church, it's it's time we openly talk about this and other difficult questions. Probably overdue talking about it, actually. Now, as a family, we recently watched the Disney film Buzz Lightyear. Anyone else watched the film Buzz, the new one, Buzz Lightyear? You remember the old one, Toy Story, but there's a new Buzz Lightyear film out. Now, in the film, I was quite shocked, but not actually completely surprised, because... 
a little while into it, we meet the two main characters, Buzz and his captain, who's a lady, and it turns out the captain has met someone. Buzz, I've met someone whilst you've been away. And Buzz says, oh, what's her name? Or what's she like? Buzz, knowing that his captain is gay. And you think, oh, okay. And then later on, his captain uh, says, actually, we're getting married. They have a a gay marriage. And then they have a child as well. You don't see how they have a child, but this marriage then, they have a child and they bring up the child. And so I'm thinking, oh. Now, I'm not completely surprised because about two years ago, another film came out called Onward, which is another DreamWorks Disney film. And it made a slight reference of a female police officer referring to her girlfriend at home. So that was the first time I kind of encountered in a children's film reference to homosexuality. And I, I guess they were testing the waters. And that was okay. So then they kind of can bring in gay marriage into a children's film as well. So for me, that was like, oh, do you know what? We need to talk about this. Now, parents don't want to have a conversation about sexuality with their children at a young age. But the reality is, is that their schools and the films already are. Um, you know, it's, the, the films are suggesting that a gay marriage is something to aspire to. And uh, in June this year, I watched a video of MP Miriam Cates. Now, she was, she's an MP arguing in uh, Westminster or debating, and she's also an ex-biology teacher. And this MP, Miriam, was concerned that she wanted stricter guidelines for religious education in school, because I think, was it, was it 2020, they said every school must teach religion, uh, sorry, sexual education. You must teach it. And so therefore, schools suddenly had to find resources to teach sexual education in primary schools and secondary schools. And a lot of the resources that came out, the MP looked at them as an ex-teacher and thought, whoa, you know, some of the resources that the schools are being provided and are using, she said they're biased towards sexualizing prepubescent children, even before children should be thinking about sexualizing themselves and having sex, they're kind of, it's being encouraged. Uh, Extreme and explicit content, and even encouraging primary school children to question their gender. You know, are you sure you're a boy or a girl? Because there is an option in between as well. Um, And she was saying, we need to have some strict guidelines because what's being provided and used is is awful. Uh, It can be awful. So this is not a conversation we really want to have as a church, and particularly parents don't want to really sit their kids down at such a young age and say, look, we need to talk about gender sexual identity and things like that. But if their films are talking about it, you know, if the God of this world has finally been allowed to get into our living rooms in front of our children and say these kind of things that that we'll find out are not strictly according to God's word, then we need to kind of provide the alternative rather than just letting our children be taught what the world thinks that they need to know and the way they need to go. So, what is the truth? Well, how do you answer someone who says, I was born with same-sex attraction, so I guess God wants me this way? How do you respond to the subject of LGBTQ+, 
It used to be LG, L, LGT, didn't it? Something like that. Now it's gone to. So it's, it's expanded to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and the Q is queer or questioning, and the plus stands for a growing number of other identities. It's kind of ever growing in a sense. <clears throat> so as a follower of Jesus, how should I respond to the subject of LGBTQ+? As a church, how do we respond? Now, I guess the first thing we, remind, we need to remind ourselves about LGBTQ+, is that it's not just a phrase or a title, it's not just a bunch of people. It's individual human beings. You know, this isn't just them, you know, that group. This is individual human beings we're talking about. Each one loved by God. You know, Maynard loves us to remind us in John 3.16, the whosoevers, every one of us is a whoever. Every human being is a whoever. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. So everyone is a whoever loved by God. So that's the first thing we need to get into our minds when we approach this difficult subject. We're dealing with human beings, you and I, loved by God. Okay. And it's God's love for each whoever that provided the way through Jesus to be born again, adopted as his sons and daughters, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and to be increasingly transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. That's his plan for each and every whoever which happens through the obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit through his inner witness and the written word. So this transformation happens when we obey the leading of the Holy Spirit inside us and through his written word. However, problems tend to arise when people cannot agree on what the word of God says. You'd probably be in the same room when one person's saying, oh, the Holy Spirit has told me this, another person saying, Holy Spirit has told me the complete opposite, or, you know, I believe this is what God's word says. No, I, no, it's totally different. So that's when problems arise, when people can't agree with what the word of God says. Have you ever experienced that? Now, this could be because the word of God is not obvious in a certain subject. Okay, there's a lot of that. But also, if the word of God is obvious and clear in a certain subject, then pride can become a barrier when God's truth conflicts with a person's worldview and experience. Remember we talked about not falling into the trap of saying, well, God's word says this, but I'm experiencing this, so really God's will is a mixture of the two. That's when problems start and pride. Pride tends to say... I'm like this, therefore it's right for me to imagine that God must be a certain way to fit in what I'm experiencing. Pride says, God, you need to conform to what I'm experiencing and what I think. Whereas humility conforms to God. Whereas pride says, no, God must be a bit different to be fit into my circumstances. Humility conforms to God, whereas pride wants to conform God. And left unchecked, human pride eventually dismisses God altogether. There is no God. You know, I am who I am, I do what I do. There is no God. It's just me. Sadly, where stubborn pride is concerned, truth cannot transform because God's grace cannot abound, like it says in the Word. But instead, it says in James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
And I find, it, I find it quite sad that the LGBTQ community has chosen pride as one of their main slogans. You know, whenever you see a, a prideful person, for me, I wince, because I know that God says I resist the proud. Um, so it's, it's, it's sad when anyone chooses pride. So we all need to approach this subject with humility and drop pride like a stone, whether that's religious pride, gay pride, or any other type of pride. James 4.10 says, Humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. Our own relationship with Jesus begins and continues only when we realize how much we are in need of his forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace. Or to put it another way, like Jesus said, we cannot begin to examine the splinter in someone's eye until we've taken care of the plank of wood in our own. Now this helps us to be very conscious of what God has forgiven us and should obliterate any sense of superiority or self-righteousness when we know how much God has forgiven us and how he's worked on us. It's like Jesus explained to the judgmental dinner host once. She loves much because she knows she's been forgiven much. But whoever thinks they need only to be forgiven a little loves little. Properly admitting and yielding to our own struggles to Jesus will soften our hearts towards others. And it will make us approachable and safe people because we won't have a condemning spirit. There will be times when we have things to say that will be hard to hear, like offering a word of correction. But we should be doing it as people who sit under the correction of Jesus and recognize how tender he is to us and how patient he is with us. I like the way Jesus summed up his commandment for us to love our neighbor. In Matthew 7, 12, he said, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Whenever I've come across a difficult situation of how to treat someone, I ask myself, how would I want to be treated? If I were this person, how would I want me to treat me? whether that's dealing with the subject of LGBTQ+, or anything else. How would I want to be treated? Okay? So we're laying a foundation, basically, at the moment, before we even get to the answers and the questions. It's about love, isn't it? God loves this person. God loves me. What I'm dealing with, he knows, he cares. Okay. You might have heard this quote from Billy Graham. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job is to love. However, Ephesians 4.15 also adds that part of our love for someone is to speak the truth in love. So when it comes to LGBTQ+, what is the truth? Well, hopefully laying a clear foundation of love, humility, Let's see what the Bible has to say, shall we? What does God say about identity, sexuality, and marriage, and some other things, the plus? Where do we think we go? Where should we go to begin? Genesis. Genesis. In the beginning. Should we go to Genesis? Yeah, in the beginning. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, verse 26.
If we go on, hopefully the children just go and join the youth party instead. Give us a little bit more time. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us... Now, he's not talking about one singular God and the angels. Us, he's talking about a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now, I love the way that Jesus, who who made us, and the one whose image we are made in, not only came to earth to reconcile us to God, to pay for our sins, but he also came to remind us of what our true image is really like. If you want to know what you're meant to look like, look to Jesus. We're made in his image, and he came and showed us what the image looks like. Okay? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Ooh. You were made in the image of God so that you may rule. And we'll study that another time. But the world was supposed to take its cue from us, not the other way around. But we've ended up taking our cue from the world, haven't we? So that they may rule over us, rule over, sorry, not rule over God, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. How many categories of human being did God create? Two, male and female. Is there anything elsewhere in the Bible where God, in hindsight, added a third or more category of human sexuality? No. Do you think God knew what he was doing when he created just two categories of human beings, male and female? Yeah. Were both genders made in the image of God? Yes. But they were in separate categories, male and female. So even though they were both in the image and likeness of God, what made them different from each other? What made male and female different? What made Adam male and Eve female? Well, it was the the Adam's apple. (laughs) Yeah. It was their physical makeup. Their biology. They both had all the same organs that males and females share in common. But there were some obvious differences too. Eve was wonderfully designed and equipped for creating an egg in her ovaries and nurturing that same egg in her womb whilst it undergoes the miracle we call pregnancy. And then after giving birth to the miracle of the baby, she is also equipped physically to feed that baby. And what about Adam? What was he physically equipped to do? Not much. (laughs) Yeah. Not much, say the ladies. Washing up, says Wendy. Well, yes, basically, but wonderfully too, God made male equipped to produce the seed that would fertilise the egg inside the woman. So both genders, so fearfully and wonderfully made, and how everything is knitted together in them was so complex, and yet, on the other hand, the practicalities of why God made two genders and how to tell them apart was so simple. So in God's wisdom, in his mind, what is it that defines you as male or female? The biology of your body. Okay? Now we will talk another time about the fact that there is 0.02% of people, babies in the world, born with both genders. 
or biologically both bits and pieces, okay? But for the 99.98% of the rest of the population, okay, in God's mind, the way you tell the difference between a man and a female is biology, which is what that minister couldn't answer. And, you know, what, what makes a female a female? Okay, it's, it's simple, isn't it? But it's been made complicated. When Adam and Eve had their first child, how did they know? It's a boy! How did they know? Biology. Biology. Yeah. It's the same reason we still know. It's a boy. Okay? When Cain was born, Eve said, with the help of the Lord, sorry Adam, you don't get a mention, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Okay, that's what Eve said. Ooh, it's a boy. Thank you, Lord, it's a boy. I've brought forth a man. The Hebrew word used for man here is is, I-S, or ish. It's pronounced ish, I-S. That's the word for man. I brought forth an is, an ish. And the Hebrew word for woman is I-S-S-A. So an S-A on the end of is, isha. So ish, man, isha, woman, ish and isha. Have you noticed that both the Hebrew and our English words for male and female or before woman, have a two extra words, two extra letters added onto the word man. Man and woman. Male and female. F-E added to male and W-O added to man to make woman and female. Or ish and isha. So ladies, why is it that you get to have the word man in your name with two extra letters added? Why are you a female? Or a man. Who's to blame? Any ideas? Who came out with that idea? Yeah. Well, as well as naming all the animals, guess who got to name your gender too? The first man. See, he's not just a seed-walking donor and a mediocre washer-upper. He's also the one who named your gender. All right. Genesis chapter 2. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. How's the party going, Jude? Was it going all right? Uh, yeah, I won a prize by putting some tights over my head and eating a banana through the tights. <laughs> wow. I think that's been filmed as well, isn't it? So we uh, might get past it. Right, Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. Until Eve came along and renamed them correctly. (laughs) Sorry, only joking. I heard someone ask, where would man be without woman? And someone said, still in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. Giraffe, gazelle, wombat, tiger. Oh, wow, that one is so cute. I think that's got to be my most favourite animal of all. And God said, yes, Adam, that's my favourite animal of all kind too. Be careful now, seeing as it's both of our favourite animals, make sure you name it properly. 
And Adam said, well, seeing as it's such a special creature, would it be okay, God, if I name it after you, but reverse the letters? <laughs> what a great idea, Adam. Dog it is. Yes. Okay. But on a more serious note, do you know... Do you know what might have been a painful thought in the back of God's mind as he's enjoying this epic moment with Adam, naming the animals? Do you know what might, might have been a painful thought in God's mind? God being God would have already known that roughly 2,000 years, two and a half thousand years later, in the time of Moses, when Moses gave the commandments and the additional laws, God would have to give Adam's generations the specific instructions of Stop having sex with animals. Isn't that sad? Here God is having this epic moment with Adam, naming animals, knowing that 2,000 years ago he'd have to tell human beings, stop having sex with animals. Isn't that sad? How did mankind go from being created to rule over the animal kingdom and being one with God, to being ruled over by the kingdom of darkness and becoming one with animals? twisted isn't it do you know what the word wicked and wicker means wicker basket twisted okay but for Adam no suitable suitable helper was found the rest of God's creation so far had its other half, day and night, sun and moon, land and sky made and female animals to produce after their own kind, now it was Adam's turn to be introduced to his other half. Verse 21. So the Lord, caused, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with the flesh. Now apparently, before this first ever surgical procedure, Adam had opted for a rib. Because originally Adam said, what will it cost me to get the perfect woman? And God said, an arm and a leg. <laughs> okay, what can I get for a rib? Okay. <laughs> That's, it. That's the end of the joke. Sorry. <laughs> Verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Ishor, for she was taken out of man. When you try and Google why the word woman has the word man in it, woman, it's not because you've got a womb, you know, a man with a womb. Um, actually, when you Google it, no one knows. They'll, they'll quote some French names and things like that, of an old 400 years old Latin and things like that, but there's nothing before then to tell you why the word woman has the word man in it and female has the word male in it. Actually, the Bible tells us why. Because Adam named you. He said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You come from a man, so you are going to be called ish or man with an, another S and an A on the end of it. Okay. All right. So there we have it, ladies. 
why your gender has the word male and female with two letters added to it. Because Adam recognized that God made woman out of man and presented to him as his other half. That's why we have male and female. Okay? So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So how many categories of gender did God see fit to create? Two. And what day did God create Adam and Eve? Six. And what did God do after that? Turn to Genesis 2, 1 to 2, unless you're in Genesis 2 already. Verse 1 to 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array, and by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. So God had designed and put into place all he had mind and wanted. Job done. His idea of very good had been achieved and was now set in motion. Agreed? Or did he begin on did he begin working again on Monday and no? He's finished. All right. His pièce de résistance was humanity with its two genders, male and female, Ish and Ishar, both in his image, but each with obvious practical biological differences. So why? Do we nowadays have as many as 47 gender and sexual identities and counting? Who added another possible 45 categories to God's two? Did God? We did. And by we, I mean the world. Why? Why did we add more? Well, can I just remind you of what Apostle John's opinion of the world is? Okay, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 John 1, 5, 19, John says this. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Do you think John is being a bit overdramatic when he says the whole world is under the control of the evil one? 20 years ago, would you have ever thought it possible that in 2022, parents would be able and even choosing not to put the sex of their baby on the birth certificate so that the baby could later decide what sex it is? Could you ever imagine doing that 20 years ago? Do you think John is, is uh, being a bit overdramatic when he says the whole world is under the control of the evil one? Not all conspiracy theories are true. But the Bible's theory that Satan is controlling the world to conspire against God is. And this is the same evil one who has been, with increasing blatancy, pulling the strings behind kids' films and TV and school curriculums because he wants people to be as far from God's very good original as he can get them before the end comes, before Jesus puts it right. And I know we have so many other questions to ask and answer. But when it comes to gender, what is God's very good? Two male and female, distinguished by their obvious physical anatomy, which is God's simplicity. Anything extra is what the world has added, because ever since Adam and Eve sinned, things began to get a whole lot more complicated. But if we want God's grace, we have to be humble, and to be humble is to let go of the complicated 
and accept God's very simple every time. Whether that be concerning our gender, our sexuality, our healing, even our salvation, we can only receive his grace by being humble and accepting his simple. Psalm 25, 9 says, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. God's simple truth can sometimes initially hurt our pride and offend our intellect. But if we are humble enough to let it transform our thinking, his truth can set us free. Isaiah 66 says, Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Now I know we haven't answered hardly any questions about sexuality and what Jesus might say regarding the LBG plus issues. But hopefully today we laid a foundation that God loves each of us equally and each one of us needs to be humble before God and each other. And however complicated the whole subject of identity and sexuality might seem to the world's perspective, it's discovering God's simple that will actually provide grace that truly sets us free. So hopefully now we've laid a foundation, we can answer a few more questions next time.